Glad you're here this morning. There we go. It's a treat to have our regular folks here this morning and to have some family members who may be here for a, a, a baby dedication. Some folks may be here just for the first time. You're invited by someone. I want you to know that we treasure your, your time this morning. We want to be a good steward with it. Um, I want to just kind of give you a little um, plan for how the rest of the morning goes. If you're here for the first time, it's kind of maybe helpful to have a kind of a map of where we're going in these next few minutes. I'm going to pray here for in, in a minute. We're going to pray for another church in our community. We don't pray for other churches because we've heard there's, there's some problem. We pray for other churches because we want great things to happen in and through the local churches in our community. So uh, we're not in competition with other churches, and we don't want to be. So we want to pray that God will do something awesome in another church that we're going to pray for this morning. Um, and then I'm going to talk for a while. Um, I should prepare you, too. I don't really give a lot of... Um, conjecture and opinion. It's not my job. It's not what I'm called to do here at Crosspoint. I'm called to expose what's in this book, this Bible. So um, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, that's okay. It doesn't mean you somehow um, forgot something because, in fact, we have something for you that's in the seat back in front of you or in the seat bottom in front of you. Or if you're sitting on the front row, you can have somebody pass one to you. If you don't have one, we want you to have that Bible if you don't have one. Even if you do have one and you didn't bring it, you'll need that Bible in these next few minutes um, because I'm, I'm, I'm talking from that book, so it'll be helpful to have it in front of you. And in fact, if you want to go ahead and have a page number handy, you can turn to page 961 because that's where we're going to be this morning. If you have your own Bible and don't have a few Bible and it's an ESV, that page number will likely work for you as well unless you have like a different um, format ESV. And then I'm going to talk for a while, and then we're going to have um, a meal. It's not a big meal. It's not something that's going to satisfy you for the day. We won't count it as your Easter meal, but it's a meal that we delight in every single week. It's called the Lord's Supper. And um, if you are trusting in Christ, or if over the course of the morning you trust in Christ, then you're invited to take that meal with us here in these next few minutes after, our, after I talk for a bit. It's called a sermon, by the way, if, if, you're, if you're unfamiliar with all this. I don't want to assume anything this morning. So um, after I share a sermon, um, it won't be a lengthy one this morning. For those of you that are accustomed to some mega sermons, this will be a kind of a, mini, a medium sermon. So um, we'll uh, consider God's word. We'll have a meal together. We'll, we'll sing some more uh, in a fitting response to what we've heard and what we're celebrating. And then we will um, have a baby dedication, and then we'll dismiss. So... I want to give you a plan for the morning. Let me pray. God, what a treasure, treasure to gather with your people this morning. And even on top of that, to gather with friends and family who may have joined us this morning. I pray with everything in me that it will be an impactful, meaningful time for every single person in this room. Lord, guard us, please, from just doing church this morning. God, I pray that you will speak to us through our time together. That you will uh, open our eyes to some things that are eternally true. Some things that we can really hold on to. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for another church in our community. We, are, we delight in the opportunity every week to lift up an, uh, another local church. We want to pray for FBC Greenville and for Roy Youngblood 
Lord, praying for Roy uh, being a pastor, a new, or a pastor that's new to FBC Greenville. Lord, I pray for his family and his worship. I pray that first of all that his family has connected to Greenville, that they've uh, found um, friends already and places to go and things to do. Lord, I pray that they've connected to church members and church family in a way that will nourish them, bless them. Lord, I pray that, that you are fueling them with worship right now as they go about the work of, as Roy goes about the work of pastoring FBC Greenville after a very tough season of um, just such a terrible thing happening to their previous pastor. Lord, we pray for this church body, for FBC Greenville. We pray for health. We pray for growth. We pray for your glory and uh, kingdom advancement through this church, Lord. We pray that that they won't have room to seat everyone as you're drawing them into this, into this life with you. God, I pray that uh, whatever way that we can come alongside FBC Greenville and uh, Roy, Lord, I pray that if it's just our lifting them up this morning, um, then that's fine. But if there's anything beyond that, Lord, I pray that you would give us view to that and that we would walk in that faithfully. Lord, we turn this time over to you. We look forward to what's in store. Uh, we are, I thank you in advance for how you blessed me with this just simple, simple presentation, simple understanding of the good news. I pray you'll do something wonderful with it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was a junior in high school when the, bar- the, bar- the barracks in Beirut were bombed. 1983. Nearly 300 American and French service members were killed. 220 of them were Marines, and I served with Marines that had helped clean up after the rubble, after the, or clean up the rubble after the event. I can't say that I was a news junkie before then. I can't say that I was a news junkie after then. Even since then, I can't say that I am, but I don't remember many other bombings before 9-11. That Beirut bombing was the only one that really came to mind in just uh, short notice. The USS Cole was another one that came to mind shortly before 9-11. But it seems like since 9-11, the mass events, like what happened in Brussels this last week, just seem routine. I think we are living in terrifying times. The presidential race is a whole nother matter. One candidate is under investigation and another two are in an insult contest that now includes their wives. I can't help but imagine that past presidents, maybe the buried ones, maybe we'll go there, wouldn't be speechless over what we're dealing with right now in this presidential race. I think that I vote for pine straw officially. You have to look that up if you have no idea what I'm talking about. I vote for pine straw. The racial tensions are at a a level that I don't remember. Since Trayvon Martin, since Michael Brown and Ferguson, it seems like they're at an all-time high. Some of you that are older than me, you may be able to remember times where things were worse. But what's hard for me right now, what's hard to stomach, is that leaders who are in positions to ease that tension seem to instead get mileage out of it. 
people that could bring our country together and help us heal from those sorts of things just seemed to get mileage out of stirring it up. The national debt is at $19 trillion. I can't even, I don't know how many zeros that is, but it's a bunch. It's nearly double what it was when President Obama entered office in 2009. Nearly double. Just in the weekly news this week, a United Airlines pilot ran what their district attorney called, their district attorney called a massive brothel network right here in Texas. An American Airlines, or United Airlines pilot. Also in the news this week, nine students and parents face murder charges for an after-school brawl in Georgia. An after-school brawl where parents and students all got involved. Also in the news this week, a Wyoming wolf pack is on an elk, elk killing spree for no reason at all, just for sport. Wolves are just into sport killings now. Really, the straw that breaks, breaks the camel's back for me and just really puts me over the edge is that now there's a movie out where Batman is pitted against Superman, of all people. <laughs> I mean, that seriously, as if there's not enough conflict in the world, we've got to take the good guys and pit them against one another and make a movie out of it. That does it for me. <laughs> Man, in times like this, seriously... What in the world do we have to hold on to? I don't remember an Easter being so troubled. Me being troubled. In times like this, what in the world do we have to hold on to? I feel like we're scaling a rock wall and we're running out of handholds and the pitch is increasing backwards. I thought about a couple of options of things that we can hold on to that are faithful and trustworthy, and family's a pretty good option, but I think a lot of us in here can relate to the fact that it's not foolproof. It's not a perfect option for some have experienced their greatest suffering at the hands of family members. Friends are another good option. At a time when it's hard to find something to hold on to, friends can be a great option, but those too can be quite the roller coaster. Because sadly, friends come and go, and sadly, friends disappoint and fail one another and let each other down. In times like this, I ask the question, is there something that we can truly hold on to, really hold on to that won't move? Something steady. What if there is something that we can hold on to that's that static, that's that strong? What if there is something so great that we can grip that it puts all these other terrible things in a whole new light? Something that's so amazing that we can hold on to that may not change any of those details I just shared one iota, but they change us in those details, in this mess. What if there's something so awesome that we could actually have joy in a mess like we're in right now? And peace in a mess like this? I think this morning we'll find that we're, we can grab such a thing. We're going to go to Corinth and see if we can find such a thing. 
Corinth was destroyed by Rome in 146 BC, completely leveled by Rome. The city was sacked, it was burned, the male population was all killed, and the women and children were sold into slavery. The city sat in rubble, in ruins, for the next almost 100 years. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar, shortly before he was murdered, set up a colony there in Corinth, a Roman colony. And he populated this Roman colony with what they called freedmen. Sounds kind of cool. But let me tell you what these freedmen were. These are the people that populated the the area that's receiving this letter we're going to consider this morning. Here's what was written about those people. Those often sold unstable and disreputable slaves. They're not the cream of the crop that had been moved to Corinth. Those slaves that were hard to sell are the slaves that you had to sell over and over again because the sale, the sale wouldn't stick. The early settlers also, on top of that, to Corinth, made a living out of robbing and looting ancient Greek graves. That's the way they made a living. Now, within 100 years, things had changed totally in Corinth. By the time Paul arrived, about 100 years later, this city had been transformed from ruins to riches. Now, you remember their heritage. You remember the people, slaves that were hard to sell, had gone from being poor, robbing graves, to now many of them being super rich. Apparently, Corinth was in a place that was ideal for commercial opportunities. Those opportunities were ample, and those who took advantage of them became very rich very quickly. And those who didn't take advantage of it became very poor. And there was a significant division, distinct division in the community that you see as a theme in First and Second Corinthians between the rich and the poor, between those of status and those who weren't. The church was simply a reflection of Corinth. One of my commentators described the social dynamics in Corinth, and here's how he described it. I thought he was talking about today. Listen to this. They're schmoozing, massaging of a superior's ego, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's backs, and dragging rivals' names through the mud. Is this talking about a political uh, uh, event? It's just talking about life in Corinth. All of this describes what was required to attain success in Corinth. Corinth, he says, seems to have been been a city designed for those who were preoccupied with the marks of social status. This letter is written to a church. It was 2,000 years ago, but there's not a whole lot of difference between them and us. And it's into that context that Paul gave them some good news. Some something to hold on to. So let's look together at what that was. Beginning in chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
These words are written to a divided church of rich and poor, those of status and those without, and they are neck deep in the problems of the world. You can look back in previous chapters and see the headings there. There are lawsuits, there's sexual sin, there's division, 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 all through the book because it's all through the people. And then on top of this, particular to to today's passage, there is apparently a false teaching going on about the resurrection. Someone has, has, has crept into the church and is teaching a doctrine in the church that the resurrection doesn't happen for believers. So Paul is writing to the church on this occasion. And he reminds them of something that he shared with them that is so valuable that they're receiving it, they're standing in it, and they're holding fast to it means salvation. Now, I'm going to read that again. I, let, me, let me see if I can just somehow, not physically, but effectively, sit in the seat next to you this morning. Some of you are here just because you were just dragged here. Okay, I totally get that. I was dragged to church my entire life. <laughs> it's not something unfamiliar to me. Some of you are here because it's Easter. Some of you are here because it's Sunday. Some of you are just here. Man, just, I'm just here. Just give me a break. I want this to be more than just being here in these next few minutes. Even if you're here every Sunday and you have a routine of tuning out at about this point, with everything in me, I beg you don't do that. Because I want you to know that what we're about to consider is what Paul shared with the Corinthian church that is so valuable. A story that he told them that is so valuable that they're receiving it, they're standing in it, and they're holding fast to it meant their salvation. That, just let that word hit you just for a minute. Even if, like I said, you normally tune out about now. We're going to consider something that meant their salvation if they held fast to it. How good can this be? How delightful and wonderful can this be? We're going to explore it this morning. It's got three parts. But I think what we're going to find is this is what we're hoping to find that we can hold on to. At a time when there's not a whole lot of stuff to grip. This is something we can hold on to. That's the same 2,000 years ago that it is today that will be the same until the day that Christ comes back. Just as true, just as firm, just as awesome. So let's look at it. Beginning in verse 3, we're only going to go as far as verse 8 this morning. Three things unfold in these few verses. Three things, this thing that he gave them on his first missionary journey there, which would have been his second missionary journey, his his first time coming there and planting the church, he gave this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul is simply giving them what was given to him. Nothing sexy. He's not putting a whole new spin on it. He's not putting a whole new flavor. He's not spicing it up. It's the same thing that was given to him is the same thing that we're going to be looking at and enjoying this morning. Three things. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That's the first thing. Secondly, that he was buried. 
And third, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Three things that he shared with this church on his first visit there, which would have been probably six or seven years before this letter was written to them, that he's having to remind them of those three things. First of all, that Christ died for their sins. Secondly, that he's buried. And third, that he is risen. We're going to consider these things in these next few minutes. I'd like for you to turn to Luke chapter 23, please. Luke chapter 23. I'm going to read a story to you. And I want you to hear this story in a way that you may have never heard it before. When the Boston Marathon bombing happened, when 9-11 happened, when the attacks happened in Paris, I I told you I'm not a news junkie, and I really don't think I am because I know some of you that are, and I'm not you. Although I do read the news. And these stories, these terrible tragedies. I have something. Terry Sadler's smiling over there because he's a junkie. He knows who I'm talking about. I read those stories that were connected to the 9-11 event. They were connected to the Boston Marathon bombing. I read them like I was in them. Something, I was caught up in those stories because they're about real people that were experiencing real tragedy with real blood and real pain and real loss and real suffering. I read those stories like I bet you did. And your heart raced with them. You felt that sick feeling, that pit in your stomach when they experienced a loss of family members telling a story about a loved one that left a message on their cell phone as they're, as they're in the top of the, tra- the, the trade center or tried to call them. Or they heard the last words over a phone call before the whole thing went down. I'm going to read this story and hopefully we can sort of climb into this story like we climb into the news at least. At least hear it and read it like the news. Maybe even better and more involved than that, but at least that much. Let's consider this passion account like it's the first-hand account from first-hand eyewitnesses. Now we're reading from Luke. Luke isn't a first-hand account, but he's heard it from those who were. And I suspect that as Luke wrote these words, as people read these words in the first century church, that their hearts raced like we do when we read the news about some tragic event. That they asked questions as they read it. Well, what was this guy thinking? Well, what's going on over there? What were these guys doing? Maybe we can do that in these next few minutes. Maybe read a story that you've read a hundred times. Maybe the first time. But let's read it like it's a real story. With real people and real blood and real suffering and real loss. We're going to parachute into this story. We're not going to read the entire account. We're going to start at verse 18. But they all cried out together of Luke chapter 23 verse 18 they all cried out together away with this man and release to us Barabbas now if I were in first century church I can't help but imagine that I'd be wondering that I'd be shocked and amazed that only 
hours before, days before, according to this gospel and other gospels, that this same city, likely these same mouths were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! Would you just be going, wait a minute. What just happened? They did what? They're shouting for a thief and a robber to replace the one that only days before they had shouted Hosanna for? They laid down palm fronds as he rode into town. They cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a scoundrel. Give us instead this scoundrel rather than this Jesus. Give us Barabbas, a man who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city for murder. Can you feel a pit in your stomach as you're reading this? Barabbas? Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Feel the tension there, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil as has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I'll therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Crucified? You mean nailed to a piece of wood, stripped to die public, publicly in front of a community, in front of a city? Yeah, that. Instead, give us this scoundrel and take this Jesus and nail him to a tree. Crucify him. And their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Can you see the prisoner exchange? Can you see Barabbas? Walking by, he's got a tear tatted right here. He's got tats all over. I'm not anti-tat. No, anybody's like pro-tat. I'm saying this guy was, man, he looked like 100 miles of bad road. <laughs> got a scowl on his face, and he's coming out. He's probably wondering, how did this just unfold? <laughs> what luck! And then seeing Jesus innocent like a sheep before shears, walking the opposite direction, walking to his death and they led him away and they seized Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus he was too beaten to carry it himself and there followed him a great multitude of the people and the women who were mourning and lamenting for him but turning to them Jesus said daughters of Jerusalem do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children for behold the days are coming when they will say blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed then they will begin to say to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us for if they do these things when the wood is green what will happen when it's dry two others who are criminals Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him. If you'd followed Jesus for three years, 
if you thought he was going to be the answer to the problems of Israel, to your problems, and you saw him nailed to a cross, can you feel that with me for a moment? Can you feel that loss, that pit in your stomach, that betrayal? What, God, where did you go? We thought he was yours. They took him to the skull, and there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, what? Yeah, man, that's what he said next. Imagine being with the first century church hearing this read to you for the first time. You don't have, everybody doesn't have a Bible. They're reading this to you for the first time. He said, what? As he's hanging from a cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. As if death and beating isn't enough. Scoffing and mocking. Saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers join in with the leaders mocking him, the rulers. Coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, you can imagine him turning to him, bloodied, looks at him and says, Truly I say to you, thief, forgiven thief who's placed his trust in me, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Is this the way it went down? Yeah, that's the way it went down. It's now about the sixth hour, about noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Darkness at noon. While the sunlight's sun's light faded or failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, that's what had become of Jesus, a spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Beating your breasts was an ancient Ritual that expressed an act that expressed grief. It expressed sorrow. It expressed loss, woe, despair. 
it was enacted also expressed regret. I can't but imagine, help but imagine that there were some of that crowd, maybe large portions of that crowd that left that event, that spectacle, beating their breasts thinking, what have we done? Maybe they felt like this centurion who said, surely, certainly, this man was innocent. And all his acquaintances, Lazarus there, freshly raised, got a new lease on life. Mary and Martha there, they're huddled up together, weeping. Sunday hadn't come yet, and they're weeping. Imagine Mary. John's got her gathered up. because Jesus said, take care of my mom. And his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. I can't imagine they weren't heartsick. Dying for the benefit of others was not a new idea. 2,000 years ago. In fact, there's an ancient philosopher, a man named Celsus, that wrote about death for someone else. Here's what he said. He said he, or here's what he affirmed, according to Origen, one of our early church fathers writing about Celsus. He said he affirmed that a life laid down for others could and did remove evils that have fallen upon cities and countries, but he denied any value to Christ's death because the manner of his dying was so inglorious, so vile, so vulgar, and shameful in comparison to the Greco-Roman heroes, he could not accept that his death had any value. Man, it's interesting that this is what Paul received and what he passes on to a church of something to hold on to. Because at this point, it doesn't look like it's worth holding on to. If Paul's words that he shared with them that first visit were only Christ died, what a sad, tragic misadventure. What a terrible story. But it doesn't say that Christ died only. It said Christ died for our sins. His death wasn't a sad misadventure, but it was destined for him to pay for the sins of those who trust in him. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, that we have loved, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here's the good news for God's people to consider this morning. That Christ died not just some tragic death, but he died to accomplish something. And what he did in that moment on that cross is he bore the wrath that you and I are due. That word propitiation, that's what that means. It means wrath absorber. He absorbed every bit of what we were due for past, present, and future sins. The the shocker to me is that we could consider this from Easter to Easter or Sunday to Sunday and just say, oh, hum. When and what is for lunch? 
He did what? He was crucified publicly in a way that their contemporaries say that can't be any value to bear your sins and mine. That's what Paul's reminding them of. That's what he's giving them to hold on to. His death accomplished a living victory, unlike the Greco-Roman victors. They might have won a battle, but guess what? They're dead. And that victory was soon overturned in another battle. But his victory is altogether different. He accomplished something that is a living victory, paying for past, present, and future sins of his people. That's the first part of what Paul gave the Corinthian church. The second part of what he gave them is just so plain. He was buried. Three words. He was buried. He died for your sins according to the scriptures and he was buried. There's no qualifiers. There's no adjectives. I want some adjectives in there. I want to know that there was a parade or something. But it just says just three words. That's all Paul wants them to conceptualize that he was buried because he was fully God and fully human. The most human of events. Being buried. He's just stuck in a tomb. A borrowed tomb at that. And he's sealed. The tomb is sealed and it is guarded. I read about these two things, these first two things that were almost formulaic, the way Paul is teaching the, the, the Corinthian church that maybe these other apostles that are going out and, and teachers and evangelists that are going out, that they're teaching this as a, as, as a guide, that he's, he died for your sins, he's buried, and he's risen. Three parts. It's just that basic, and it's that travels. It travels all over the Roman Empire. That If this is a formula, the way he's handling his, his death for your sins and the burial is that they just go hand in hand, death and burial, like buying a present and wrapping it. I tried to find an idiom that would come close. The closest that I found is her goose was cooked when she was caught cheating on a test. She's caught and punished. He dies. He's buried. You think about a fish. He's caught and cooked. They go together. He's done. Paul wanted these guys, apparently, to connect to the loss, to the finality of it, the feeling of it. He died for your sins and then he's buried. Just let it hit you. Because it's in that backdrop that this third thing comes in that he was raised. I'm going to read verses 4 through 8 again and we're going to take a closer look at them. He was buried and he's raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, speaking of himself, Paul. Of the three points that Paul gave the Corinthian church, this third point, the resurrection gets most airtime. 
In this third point, he gives proofs, probably because it's the most hard to believe. It's not hard to believe somebody dies. It's not hard to believe somebody's buried. But admittedly, it's hard to believe that somebody could be raised from the dead. But then he gives proofs. There's this guy named Cephas, also Peter. That's the same guy, a.k.a. Peter. There's the 12 he gives as a proof. Then there's 500 brothers at one time. And then there's James. James is likely speaking of his brother James, who is later the bishop in Jerusalem, who was later stoned for his confession about the risen Lord. He also mentions the apostles again, and then lastly, Paul, and at the time when he appeared to him, his name was Saul. This third point gets most of the airtime, and he gives all these details about all these witnesses to the resurrection. And these people are legitimate, credible witnesses who either died for their testimony or were willing to die for their testimony. For the first time, just in these last few months reading this, I'm realizing that when we're sharing the gospel, we should be giving the proof of the resurrection, just like they did, because it happens over and over and over again. I don't give conjecture or opinion. I give proof. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Proofs throughout the record of the early church here in Acts. Acts chapter 2. The first message that's preached to the To the church, the day the church was born at Pentecost, verse 32 of chapter 2, this Jesus, Peter preaches, God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. We saw him. It's throughout this book, and it goes with these gospel presentations. Chapter 3 in Solomon's portico, Peter preaches, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. I saw him. I saw the crucifixion, but I saw him risen. It's throughout this account. Chapter 5, verse 27. The apostles are jailed, and then they come before the council and listen what they have to say to them. Here's the good news that they're sharing with the people that put them in jail. When they had brought them... They set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. Oh, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. It is throughout the Acts account, one example after another. Acts chapter 10. The apostles are arrested and freed. Now, that's the one I just did. Listen to Acts chapter 10. This is in Caesarea. Peter is in Caesarea. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with, with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing healing, and all were oppressed by the... This is what I want, chapter 10, verse yes, 38. 
And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. It's throughout the Acts. Acts chapter 13 verse 26. This is Paul here. In Caesarea. No, this is Paul in Antioch. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilling them by condemning them. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, they laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he He appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. It's throughout this account of the early church. The gospel's shared and the proof is given. These people saw him alive and these people died for their testimonies. I realize here in 2000, in the year 2000, it's easy to read this book and to dismiss it as, well, who says it's one person's account over another? But let me just offer this thought to you, that if you made something up at the point where they're pulling the knife out to disembowel you, wouldn't you, like me, say, i just kidding? These people were martyred for this testimony. Or they were jailed. At least. Or they were lying food. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned for his testimony. Don't you think they would have come clean on a concocted story before the point of death? Wouldn't you? There are no accounts of that. Count them. Zero. Zero. Zilch. None. In a way we used to say it in Louisiana, nary. Nary. And these people died for what they saw. A very risen Lord. Man, the proofs abound. The proofs abound. But man, if you're like me, you want to know the point. What's the point of his resurrection? Man, the point is clear. First of all, the payment for sins would have been for naught. It would have just been a tragic death. But his victory over death through the resurrection seals it as our victory. But man, it begs the question, what is the point of any religion that's not worshiping a risen Lord? Some of y'all are seekers. Some of you are looking for, what what am I going to believe here? And I just want you to ask you this question. Whoever you're following, whoever the main teacher of your pursuit or the thing that you might be considering whatever they're teaching are they dead or do you suspect that they're going to die i want you to imagine for a moment if there could be a god that you could worship here in this life that could make your life bliss give you anything you wanted whenever you wanted it that for this life whether it's 40 years or 80 years or 20 whatever whatever you know no promise of how long it's going to be, but just imagining that there would be a God that we could worship that would give you bliss here in this life. But yet that God was not able to deal with death. What's the use? Do you realize how short this life is compared to eternity? 
would you trade a brief moment of bliss for an eternity of bliss? And it's hard to even call it bliss because I don't think there's a God that could ever even promise that, that could ever even achieve that, to give you bliss in this life. But just ask yourself the question, are there any spokesmen for any world religion whose tombs are not occupied? I think Buddha's tomb is pretty occupied. For the Jew who's still believing in Abraham and Moses, go to their tombs. I don't know where they are. They don't, I don't know where they are either. But I, I can guarantee this, they're occupied. Muhammad, he's dead. It's bad news for those that believe in that, but he's, he's dead and his tomb is occupied. L. Ron Hubbard, he did, died of a stroke in the 80s. Charles Darwin, we're not just talking religions, we're talking belief systems. Guess what? Charles is dead. He did. Hey, he's buried somewhere, I may even know where. People go celebrate it. He celebrated a death? I want to follow somebody that has a solution to this long-term thing, or to this, this eternal thing called death and what happens afterward. Stephen Hawking, he's not dead yet, but he's not far from it. I'm not being ugly. I'm just saying. Give me somebody to follow, follow who defeated the very thing that nobody else has been able to defeat, death. I'll take that, Lord. Yes, please. Yes. That's the one I want to go with. I think that's something to hold on to. We don't know what's in store in this next decade. I've been this may be my 12th or 13th Easter. I wonder what things will be like 12 or 13 Easter's from now on the course that we're headed. It could be better. Who knows? It could be worse. But one thing's for sure, 13 years from now, if the Lord doesn't come back first... The same thing and the best thing to hold on to will still be Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised and his tomb is empty. So what do you do with this? There's really the only one thing that I think you can do. Well, there's two things, I guess. You can dismiss it as baloney. You can dismiss it as made up. You know, something that man made up to make himself feel better about it. Uh, you're dismissing the most well-documented event in history, ancient history. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ. You're dismissing eyewitnesses that went to their deaths. Still saying, no, I saw him alive. No, crucify me upside down. Yes, I saw him alive. This really hurts, but I still saw him alive. I'm not going to recant. You're dismissing eyewitnesses, many of them, to a very risen Lord. Or you can do what the Corinthian church did on his first visit there. Paul says, I preached it. You received it. You stand in it now. And if you hold fast to it, you are being saved. That's what I want to do. 
That's what I want for every single one of you. Receiving it, first of all. Maybe today is the first time for you to do that. There's some interesting tenses to those three words. Receive, stand, and hold fast. The tense to the receive is is called an aorist tense in the Greek. It, It means that it happens at a point in time. It's like it's... It would be a word that you can, you can imagine what this means if you don't know what it means. Punctiliar. Bam! This is the day that I received it. I was six years old. Miss Little, my teacher in RAs, crouched down with me in one of those overbuilt wooden church chairs that an elephant could sit in, but they're made for children. You know what I'm talking about? You pick it up and go, oh my goodness! Who overbuilt this chair and Why? I crouched down in one of those little chairs. I didn't have to crouch. I was six years old. Miss Little crouched. Miss Winters, that was her name, Miss Winters. I've been calling her Miss Little for years, and my parents have tuned me up. It's Miss Winters. That was the punctiliar event for me. I received it. I just said, this, yeah, this is true. Yes. Yes, Miss Winters. I believe what my parents have been telling me. That might be today for you. Maybe today is your punctiliar event where you're receiving it, saying, man, that's the first time I've ever really heard that Jesus died for my sins, that his death wasn't just some tragedy, but it actually accomplished something. Oh, then he was buried, and oh, he's risen, and there's lots of proof. I receive it. And then the next thing is you stand in it. And that word in the Greek is it's called the perfect tense. The perfect tense is unique to Greek. I would love it if we had a version of it in English. The perfect tense is something that happens at a point in time, but has reaching effects, ongoing effects. You received this message, it happened at a point in time, and at that moment, you stepped into it. This is where I stand. He's who I stand with. And the effects leave you changed forevermore. And the third thing is present tense, holding fast. Holding fast to it. Holding fast to this message. Holding fast to this Jesus. Holding fast to this risen Lord. Holding fast to it with God's people. And the outcome there is that you are being saved. I don't know why anyone wouldn't do that. I don't know why anybody wouldn't want this. It's the only fitting response, I believe. Receive it, stand in it, and hold fast to him. Let's pray. God, I want this for this people, every person in this room. I want this for myself. God, I beg for this. I pray this morning that we've considered what we've considered will be so compelling that it will galvanize those who are already yours to realize the beauty of what we walk in, the gravity of what we celebrate every Easter the treasure, the scandal of it all. 
And God, I pray for those that may have heard this for the first time this morning. That this is what it means to become a Christian. Lord, I pray that that's happened in this room, in these moments. I pray that punctiliar event of receiving has happened right here. And that the standing has begun and the holding fast continues. I pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11 gives us something else that God gave Paul. This morning we've considered something God gave Paul that Paul gave the Corinthian church. He gave them a message. It was given to Paul. Paul gave it to them. Christ Christ died for their sins. He's buried and he's risen. Well, the next thing we're going to consider this morning is something else that Paul received from the Lord that he gave to the Corinthian church. All we've got for you this morning is a message and a meal. And it's enough. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. I'm just passing it on. Doesn't need any spice. Doesn't need dancing girls or a light show. It's just something to hold on to. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's exactly what we've done this morning. We have proclaimed how effective it was, the first that he died, but we have proclaimed and enjoyed together what it accomplished. Every time we take this meal, we enjoy that together. And I want to invite you, if you received that for the first time this morning, then take and eat. The first of many meals with us or with anybody and pray that that will continue if you're visiting with us this morning or traveling. If you're already trusting Christ, as man, that's where, I, I, that's where I stand. I planted my feet there, and I'm holding fast to him. Then you, you take and eat. Enjoy this meal as we remember our Lord and remember what he accomplished. Let's distribute the elements.